Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode we're going to read chapters 13 to 14 and in the previous episode we read chapters 11 through 12. Now, in this, in the previous episode, Percy and the gang had ended up confront, confronting Nike and had kidnapped her. And Nike had mentioned the concept of a physician, physician's cure, almost like a way to cheat death. So, therefore, when the gang hears about this, they're now interested in seeing how they're going to be able to potentially find a loophole in the prophecy. Now, will it work? I'm not sure, but let's read, let's continue reading to see if we get any clue as to how this is going to help them. So now we're going to read chapter 13, but this time from Nico's perspective. Chapter 13, Nico. The last thing Nico heard was Coach Hedge grumbling, Well, this isn't good. He wondered what he'd done wrong this time. Maybe he teleported them into a den of cyclops, or a thousand feet above above another volcano. There was nothing he could do about it. His vision was gone. His other senses were shutting down, his knees buckled, and he passed out. He tried to make the most of his unconsciousness. Dreams and death were old friends of his. He knew how to navigate their dark borderland. He sent out his thoughts, searching for Talia Grace. He rushed past the usual fragments of painful memories. His mother was smiling down at him, her face illuminated by the sunlight rippling off the Venetian Grand Canal. His sister Bianca laughing as she pulled him across the mall in Washington, D.C., her green floppy hat shading her eyes and the splash of freckles across her nose. He saw Percy Jackson on a snowy cliff outside Westover Hall, shielding Nico and Bianca from the manticore as Nico clutched a mythomagic figurine and whispered, I'm scared. He saw Minos, his old ghostly mentor, leading him through the labyrinth. Minos's smile was cold and cruel. Don't worry, son of Hades. You will have your revenge. Nico couldn't stop the memories. They cluttered his dreams like the ghosts of Asphodel, an aimless, sorrowful mob pleading for attention. Save me, they seemed to whisper. Remember me. Help me. Comfort me. He didn't dare stop to dwell on them. They would only crush them with wants and regrets. The best he could do was stay focused and push through. I am the son of Hades, he thought. I go where I wish. The darkness is my birthright. He forged ahead through a gray and black terrain, looking for the dreams of Talia Grace, daughter of Zeus. Instead, the ground dissolved at his feet, and he fell into a familiar backwater. The Hypnos Cabin, at Camp Half-Blood. Buried under piles of feather comforters, snoring demigods nestled in their bunks. Above the mantle, a dark tree branch dripped milky water from the river Leth into a bowl. A cheerful fire crackled in the fireplace. In front of it, in a leather armchair, dozed the head counselor for cabin 15. A pot-bellied guy with unruly blonde hair and a gentle bovine face. Clovis! Nico growled, for the gods' sake, stop dreaming so powerfully. 
Clovis's eyes fluttered open. He turned and stared at Nico, though Nico knew this was simply part of Clovis's own dreamscape. The actual Clovis would still be snoring in his armchair back at camp. Oh. Hi. Clovis yawned wide enough to swallow a minor god. Sorry. Did I pull, uh, pull you off course again? Nico gritted his teeth. There was no point getting upset. The Hypnos cabin was like the Grand Central Station for dream activity. You couldn't travel anywhere without going through it once in a while. As long as I'm here, Nico said. Pass along a message. Tell Chiron I'm on my way with a couple of friends. We're bringing the Athena Parthenos. Clovis rubbed his eyes. So it's true? How are you bringing it? Did you rent a van or something? Nico explained as concisely as possible. Messages sent through dreams tended to get fuzzier on the edges, especially when you were dealing with Clovis. The simpler, the better. We're being followed by a hunter, Nico said. One of Gaia's giants. Gaia's giant, I think. Can you get that message to Talia Grace? You're better at finding people in dreams than I am. I need her advice. Uh, I'll try. Clovis fumbled for a cup of hot chocolate on the side table. Uh, before you go. Do you have a second? Clovis, this is a dream, Nico reminded him. Time is fluid. Even as he said it, Nico worried about what was happening in the real world. His physical self might be plummeting to his death or surrounded by monsters. Still, he couldn't force himself to wake up. Not after the amount of energy he'd expended on shadow travel. Clovis nodded. Right. I was thinking you should probably see what happened today at the Council of War. I slept through some of it, but show me, Nico said. The scene changed. Nico found himself in the rec room of the big house. All the senior camp leaders gathered around the ping pong table. At one end sat Chiron the centaur. His equine posterior collapsed into his magic wheelchair, so he looked like a regular human. His curly brown hair and beard had more gray streaks than a few months ago. Deep lines etched his face. Things we can't control, he was saying. Now let's review our defenses. Where do we stand? Clarice from the Ares cabin sat forward. She was the only one in full armor, which was typical. Clarice probably slept in her combat gear. As she spoke, she gestured with her dagger, which made the other counselors lean away from her. Our defensive line is mostly solid, she said. The campers are ready, as ready to fight as they'll ever be. We control the beach. Our triremes are unchallenged on Long Island Sound. Those stupid giant eagles dominate our airspace. In land in all three directions, the barbarians have us completely cut off. They're Romans, said Rachel Dare, dawdling with a marker on the knee of her jeans. Not barbarians. Clarice pointed her dagger at Rachel. What about their alleys, huh? Do you see that tribe of two-headed men that arrived yesterday? Or the glowing red dog-headed guys with the big polyaxes? They look pretty barbaric to me. It would have been nice if you'd foreseen any of that. If your oracle power didn't break down when we needed it most. Rachel's face turned as red as her hair. That's hardly my fault. Something is wrong with Apollo's gifts of prophecy. If I knew how to fix it... She's right. Will Solis, head counselor for the Apollo cabin, put his hand gently on Clarice's wrist. Not many campers could have done that without getting stabbed. But Will had a way of diffusing people's anger. He got her to lower her dagger. Everyone in our cabin 
has been affected. It's not just Rachel. Will's shaggy blonde hair and pale blue eyes reminded Nico of Jason Grace, but the similarities ended there. Jason was a fighter. You could tell from the intensity of his stare, his constant alertness, the coiled-up energy in his frame. Will Solis was more like a lanky cat stretched out in the sunshine. His movements were relaxed and non-threatening. His gaze soft and far away, in his faded surf Barbados t-shirt, his cut-off shorts and flip-flops, he looked about as unaggressive as a demigod could get. But Nico knew he was brave under fire. During the Battle of Manhattan, Nico had seen him in action, the camp's best combat medic, risking his life to save wounded campers. We don't know what's going on at Delphi, Will continued. My dad hasn't answered my prayers or appeared in my dreams. I mean, all the gods have been silent. But this isn't like Apollo. Something's wrong. Across the table, Jake Mason grunted. <laughs> Probably this Roman dirt wipe who's leading the attack. Octavian, what's his name? If I was Apollo and my descendant was acting that way, I'd go into hiding out of shame. I agree, Will said. I wish I was a better archer. I wouldn't mind shooting my Roman relative off his high horse. Actually, I wish I could use any of my father's gifts to stop this war. He looked down at his own hands with distaste. Unfortunately, I'm just a healer. Your talents are essential, Chiron said. I fear we'll need them soon enough. As for seeing the future, what about the Harpy Yellow? Has she offered any advice from the Sibylline books? Rachel shook her head. The poor thing is scared out of her wits. Harpies hate being imprisoned. Ever since the Romans surrounded us, well, she feels trapped. She knows Octavian means to capture her. It's all Tyson and I can do to keep her from flying away. Which will be suicide. Butch Walker, son of Iris, car crossed his burly arms. With those Roman eagles in the air, flying isn't safe. I've already lost two pegasi. At least Tyson brought some of his Cyclops friends to help out, Rachel said. That's a little good news. Over by the refreshment stall, Connor Stoll left. He had a fistful of Ritz crackers in one hand and a can of Easy Cheese in the other. A surgeon full of grown Cyclops? <laughs> That's a lot of good news. Plus, Ellen and the Hecate kids have been putting up magic barriers. And the whole Hermes cabin had been lining the hills with traps and snares and all kinds of nice surprises for the Romans. Jake Mason frowned. Most of which you stole from Bunker 9 in the Hephaestus cabin. Clarice grumbled in agreement. They even stole the landmines from around the Ares cabin. How do you steal live landmines? We commandeered them for a war effort. Connor sprayed a glob of easy cheese into his mouth. Besides, you always have plenty of toys. You can share. Chiron turned to his left, where the satyr Grover Underwood sat in silence, fingering his reed pipes. Grover, what news from the nature spirits? Grover heaved a sigh. Even on a good day, it's hard to organize nymphs and dryads. With Gaia stirring, they're almost as disoriented as the gods. Katie and Miranda from the Demeter cabin are out there right now trying to help. But if the Earth Mother wakes... He looked around the table nervously. Well, I can't promise the woods will be safe, or the hills, or the strawberry fields, or... Great. Jake Mason elbowed Clovis, who was starting to nod off. So what do we do? 
attack. Clarice pounded the ping pong table, which made everyone flinch. The Romans are getting more reinforcements by the day. We know they plan to invade on August 1st. Why should we let them set the timetable? I can only guess they're waiting to gather more forces. They already outnumber us. We should attack now. Before they get any stronger, take the fight to them. Malcolm, the acting head counselor for Athena, coughed into his fist. <coughs> Clarice, I get your point, but have you studied Roman engineering? Their temporary camp is better defended than Camp Half-Blood. Attack them at their base and we'd be massacred. So we just wait? Clarice demanded. Let them get all their forces prepared while Gaia, Gaia gets closer to waking? I have Coach Hedge's pregnant wife under my protection. I am not going to let anything happen to her. I owe Hedge my life. Besides, I've been training the campers more than you know, Malcolm. Their morale is low. Everybody's scared. If we're under siege another nine days, we should stick to Annabeth's plan. Connor Stoll looked about as serious as he ever did, despite the easy cheese about around his mouth. We have to hold out until she gets that magic, Athena statue, back here. Clarice rolled her eyes. You mean if that Roman Praetor gets the statue back here? I don't understand what Annabeth was thinking, collaborating with the enemy. Even if the Roman manages to bring us the statue, which is impossible. We're supposed to trust that we'll bring peace? The statue arrives and suddenly the Romans lay down their weapons and start dancing around throwing flowers? Rachel set down her marking pen. Annabeth knows what she's doing. We have to try for peace. Unless we can unite the Greeks and Romans, the gods won't be healed. Unless the gods are healed, there's no way we can kill the giants. And unless we kill the giants, Gaia wakes, Connor said. Game over. Look, Clarice, Annabeth sent me a message from Tartarus. From freaking Tartarus. Anybody who can do that. Hey, I listened to them. Clarice opened her mouth to reply. But when she spoke, it was Coach Hedge's voice. Nico, wake up. We've got problems. And that's the end of chapter 13. What a fascinating way to see all the personalities that it's been rare to see them all together at once. All the camp head counselors at once trying to discuss how exactly what steps are needed to take in order to combat this Roman siege. I think at the end of the day, as we look at this Roman siege, it's more, it's less of tensions between the Romans and the Greeks and more of Octavian taking this opportunity to be in charge. And the first thing that he decides to do is to destroy Camp Half-Blood. I think that the fact that Octavian believes that Camp, that Camp Jupiter can do it all on their own must be a very must be very flawed for Octavian to think because not only does the prophecy say that it that the Greeks and the Romans will work together to defeat Gaia but at the same time one camp alone no matter how advanced they may be isn't going to do it i mean because this is Gaia right this is this is the earth goddess and her entire army that she's been gathering for years so in order to have a, a really, really good chance, it's important that these two camps come together. And I think that Octavian's failing to understand that. And I really do hope that he does understand it in time, in soon enough time, so that they're able to combat properly against Gaia and her army 
when they come to attack. But yes, that is the end of our first chapter. After this break, we will read the next chapter of chapter 14 and then move on to the Q&A session. So, see you then. And we're back from the break, and now we're going to read chapter 13. Sorry, 14. Nico. Nico sat up so quickly, he head-butted the satyr in the nose. Ow! Jeez, kid, you got a hard noggin! Sorry, coach. Nico blinked, trying to get his bearings. What's going on? He didn't see any immediate threat. They were camped on a sunny lawn in the middle of a public square. Beds of orange marigolds bloomed all around them. Reyna was sleeping curled up with her two metal dogs at her feet. A stone's throw away, little kids played tag around a white marble fountain. At a nearby sidewalk cafe, half a dozen people sipped coffee in the shade of patio umbrellas. A few delivery vans were parked along the edges of the square. But there was no traffic. The only pedestrians were a few families, probably locals, enjoying a warm afternoon. The square itself was cobblestone pavement, edged with wide stucco buildings and lemon trees. In the center stood the well-preserved shell of a Roman temple. Its square base stretched maybe 50 feet wide and 10 feet wide, t- 10 feet tall, with an intact facade of the Corinthian columns rising another 25 feet. And at the top of the colonnade, Nico's mouth went dry. Oh, sticks. The Athena Parthenos legs sideways along the tops of the columns like a nightway- nightclub singer sprawled across a piano. Lengthwise, she fell almost perfectly. But with Nike in her extended hand, she was a bit too wide. She looked like she might topple forward at any moment. What is she doing up there? Nico asked. You tell me. Hedge rubbed his bruised nose. That's where we appeared. Almost fell to our deaths, but luckily I've got nimble hooves. You are conscious, hanging in your harness like a tangled paratrooper until we managed to get you down. Nico tried to picture that, then decided he'd rather not. Is this Spain? Portugal, Hedge said. You overshot. By the way, Reina speaks Spanish. She does not speak Portuguese. Uh, anyway, while you were asleep, we figured out the city is Evora. Good news is a sleepy little place. Nobody's bothered us. Nobody seems to notice the giant Athena sleeping on top of the Roman temple, which is called the Temple of Diana, in case you were wondering. And people here appreciate my street performances. I made about 16 euros. He picked up his baseball cap, which jangled with coins. Nico felt ill. Street performances? A little singing, the coach said. A little martial arts. Some interpretive dance. Wow. I know! The Portuguese have taste! Anyway, I suppose this was a decent place to lie low for a couple of days. Nico stared at him. A couple of days? Hey, kid. We didn't have much choice. In case you haven't noticed, you've been working yourself to death with all that shadow jumping. We tried to wake you up last night. No dice. So I've been asleep for about 36 hours. You needed it. Nico was glad he was sitting down. Otherwise, he would have fallen down. He could have sworn he'd only slept a few minutes. But as his drowsiness faded, he realized he felt more clear-headed and rested than he had in weeks. Maybe since before he went looking for the doors of death. His stomach growled. Coach Hedge raised his eyebrows. You must be hungry, said the satyr. Either that or your stomach speaks hedgehog. That was quite a statement in Hedgehog. Food would be good, Nico agreed. But first, what's the bad news? I mean, aside from the statue being sideways. You said we had trouble. Oh, 
Right. The coach pointed to a gated archway at the corner of the square. Standing in the shadows was a glowy, vaguely human figure outlined in gray flames. The spirit's features were indistinct, but it seemed to be beckoning to Nico. Burning Man showed up a few minutes ago, said Coach Edge. He doesn't get any closer. When I tried going over there, he disappeared. Not sure if he's a threat, but he seems to be asking for you. Nico assumed it was a trap. Most things were. But Coach Edge promised he could guard Reyna for a little longer. And off the, on the off chance the spirit had actually something useful to say, Nico decided it was worth the risk. He unsheathed his Stygian iron blade and approached the archway. Normally, ghosts don't scare him, assuming, of course, Gaia, Gaia had not encased him in shells of stone and turned them into a killing machine. That had been a new one for him. After his experience with Minos, Nico realized that most specters had held only as much power as you allowed them to have. They pried into your mind, using fear or anger or a longing to influence you. Nico had learned to shield himself. Sometimes he could even turn the tables and bend ghosts to his will. As he approached the fiery gray apparition, he was fairly sure it was a garden variety of wraith, a lost soul who had died in pain. Shouldn't be a problem. Still, Nico took nothing for granted. He remembered Croatia all too well. He got into that situation smug and confident, only to have his feet swept out from underneath him, literally and emotionally. First, Jason Grace had grabbed him and flown him over a wall. Then the god Favonius had dissolved him into wind. And as for that arrogant thug, Cupid... Nico clenched his sword, sharing his secret crush might have hadn't been the worst of it. Eventually, he might have done that in his own time, in his own way. But being forced to talk about Percy, being bullied and harassed and strong-armed, simply for Cupid's amusement? Tendrils of darkness were now spreading out from his feet, killing all the weeds between the cobblestones. Nico tried to rein in his anger. When he reached the ghost, he saw a war amongst habit, Sandals, wooden robes, and a wooden cross around his neck. Gray flames swirled around him, burning his sleeves, blistering his face, turning his eyebrows to ashes. He seemed to be stuck in the moment of his immolation, like a black and white video of a permanent loop. You were burned alive, Nico sensed, probably in the Middle Ages. The ghost's face is distorted in a silent scream of agony, but his eyes looked bored, even a little annoyed as if the scream was just an automatic reflex he couldn't control. What do you want of me? Nico asked. The ghost gestured for Nico to follow. It turned and walked through the open gateway. Nico glanced back at Coach Hedge. The satyr made a shooting gesture like, go. Do your underworld thing. Nico trailed the ghost through the streets of Evora. They zigzagged through narrow cobblestone walkways, past courtyards with potted hibiscus trees, and white stucco buildings with butterscotch trim and wrought iron balconies. No one noticed the ghost, but the locals looked askance at Nico. A young girl with a fox terrier crossed the street to avoid him. Her dog growled, the hair on his back standing straight, straight up like a dorsal fin. The ghost led Nico to another public plaza, anchored at one end by a large square church with whitewashed walls and limestone arches. The ghost passed through the portico and disappeared inside. Nico hesitated. He had nothing against churches, but this one radiated death. Inside would be tombs, or perhaps something less present. pleasant. He ducked through the doorway. His eyes were drawn to a side chapel, lit from within the eerie golden light. Carved over the door was a Portuguese inscription. Nico didn't speak the language, but he remembered his childhood Italian well enough to glean the general meaning. We, the bones that are here, await yours.
Jerry, he muttered. He entered the chapel. At the far end stood an altar where the fiery wraith knelt in prayer, but Nico was more interested in the room itself. The walls were constructed of bones and skulls, thousands upon thousands cemented together. Columns of bones held up a vaulted ceiling decorated with images of death. On one wall, like coats of a coat rack, hung the desiccated skeletal remains of two people, an adult and a small child. A beautiful room, isn't it? Nico turned. A year ago, he would have jumped out of his skin if his father suddenly appeared next to him. Now, Nico was able to control his heart rate, along with his desire to knee his father in the groin and run away. Like in the Wraith, Hades was dressed in the habit of a Franciscan monk, which Nico found vaguely disturbing. His black robes were tied at the waist with a simple white cord. His cowl was pushed back, revealing dark hair shorn close to the scalp and eyes that glittered like frozen tar. The god's expression was calm and content, as if he'd just come home from a lovely evening, strolling through the fields of punishment, enjoying the screams of the damned. Getting some redecorating ideas? Nico asked. Maybe you could do your dining room in medieval monk skulls. Hades arched an eyebrow. I can never tell when you're joking. Why are you here, father? How are you here? Hades traced his fingers along the nearest column, leaving bleached white marks on the old bones. You're hard mortal to find, my son. For several days I've been searching. When the scepter of Diocletian exploded, well, that got my attention. Nico felt a flush of shame, then he felt angry for feeling ashamed. Breaking the scepter wasn't my fault. We're about to overrun. Oh, the scepter isn't important. Aurelka, that old? I'm surprised you got two uses out of it. The explosion simply gave me some clarity. It allowed me to pinpoint your location. I was hoping to speak to you in Pompeii, but it is so... Well, Roman. This chapel was the first place where my presence was strong enough that I could appear to you as myself. By which I mean Hades, god of the dead, not split with the other manifestation. Hades breathed in the stale, dank air. I am very drawn to this place. The remains of 5,000 monks were used to build a chapel of bones. It serves as a reminder that life is short and death is eternal. I feel focused here. Even so, I only have a few moments. Story of our relationship, Nico thought. You only have a few moments. So tell me, father, what do you want? Hades clasped his hands together in the sleeves of his robe. Can you entertain the notion that I might be here to help you, not simply because I want something? Nico almost laughed, but his chest felt too hollow. <laughs> I can entertain the notion that you might hear for multiple reasons. The god frowned. I suppose that's fair enough. You seek information about Gaius Hunter. His name is Orion. Nico hesitated. He wasn't used to getting a direct answer without games or riddles or quests. Orion? Like the constellation? Wasn't he a friend of Artemis? He was, he said. A giant born to... Uh, born to oppose the twins, Apollo and Artemis, but much like Artemis, Orion rejected his destiny. He sought to live on his own terms. First, he tried to live among mortals as a huntsman for the king of Chios. He, uh, ran into some trouble with the king's daughter. The king had Orion blinded and exiled. Nico thought back to what Reyna had told him. My friend dreamed of a hunter with glowing eyes. If Orion is blind, he was blind, Hades corrected. Shortly after his exile, Orion met Hephaestus, who took pity on the giant and crafted him new mechanical eyes even better than the originals. Orion became friends with Artemis. He was the first male ever allowed to join her hunt. But things went wrong between them. How exactly, I do not know. 
Orion was slain. Now he returned as a loyal son of Gaia, ready to do her bidding. He was driven by he's driven by bitterness and anger. You can understand that. Nika wanted to yell, like you know what I feel? Instead he asked, How do we stop him? You cannot, Hades said. Your only hope is to outrun him, accomplish your quest before he reaches you. Apollo Artemis might be able to slay him, arrows against arrows, but the twins are in no condition to aid you. Even now, Orion has your scent. His hunting pack is almost upon you. You won't have the luxury of more rest from here to Camp Half-Blood. A belt seemed to tighten around Nico's ribs. He left Coach Hedge on guard duty with Arena's sleep. I need to get back with my companions. Indeed, Hades said. But there is more. Your sister. Hades faltered. As always, the subject of Bianca lay between them like a loaded gun. Deadly. Easy to reach. Impossible to ignore. I mean your other sister, Hazel. She has discovered that one of the seven will die. She may try to prevent this. In doing so, she may lose sight of her priorities. Nico didn't trust himself to speak. To his surprise, his thoughts didn't leap first to Percy. His primary concern was for Hazel, then for Jason, then for Percy, and the others aboard the Argo II. They'd saved him in Rome. They'd welcomed him aboard their ship. Nico never allowed himself to luxury friends, but the crew of the Argo II was as close as he'd ever come. The idea of any of them dying made him feel empty. Like he was back in the giant's bronze jar, alone in the dark, subsisting only on sour pomegranate seeds. Finally asked, Is Hazel alright? For the moment. And the others? Who will die? Hades shook his head. Even if I were certain, I cannot say. I tell you this because you are my son. You know that some debts cannot be prevented. Some debts should not be prevented. When the time comes, you may need to act. Nico didn't know what that meant. He didn't want to know. My son, Hades' tone was almost gentle. Whatever happens, you have earned my respect. You have brought honor to our house when we stood together against Kronos in Manhattan. You risked my wrath to help the Jackson boy, guiding him to the river Styx, freeing him from my prison, pleading with me to raise the armies of Erebos to assist him. Never before have I been harassed by one of my sons. Percy this, Percy that. I nearly blasted you to cinders. Nico took a shallow breath. The walls of the room began to tremble, dust trickling from the cracks between the bones. I didn't do all that just for him. I did it because the whole world was in danger. Hades allowed him the faintest smile, but there was nothing cruel in his eyes. I can entertain the possibility that you acted for multiple reasons. My point is this. You and I rose to the aid of Olympus because you convinced me to let go of my anger. I would encourage you to do likewise. My children are so rarely happy. I... I would like to see you be an exception. Nico stared at his father. He didn't know what to do with that statement. He could accept many unreal things. Hordes of ghosts, magical labyrinths, travel through shadows, chapel made of bones. But tender words from the lord of the underworld? No. That made no sense. Over at the altar, the fiery ghost rose. He approached, burning and screaming silently, his eyes conveying some urgent message. Ah, he said. This is Brother Paloan. He's one of the hundreds who were burned alive in the square near the, near the old Roman temple. The Inquisition had its headquarters there, you know. At any rate, he suggests you leave now. You have very little time before the wolves arrive. Wolves? You mean Orion's pack? Hades flicked his hand. 
The ghost of Brother Pullowin disappeared. My ghost, my, my son, what you are attempting. Shadow travel across the world carrying the statue of Athena. It may well destroy you. Thanks for the encouragement. Hades placed his hand briefly on Nico's shoulders. Nico didn't like to be touched, but somehow this brief contact with his father felt reassuring. The same way that Chapel of Bones was reassuring. Like death, his father's presence was cold and often callous, but it was real, brutally honest, inespicably dependable. Nico found a sort of freedom in knowing that even eventually, no matter what happened, he would end up at the foot of his father's throne. I will see you again, Hades promised. I'll prepare a room for you at the palace in case you do not survive. Perhaps your chambers would look good decorated with the skulls of monks. Now I can't tell if you're joking. Hades' eyes glittered as his form began to fade. Though perhaps we are alike in some important ways. The god vanished. Suddenly the chapel felt oppressive. Thousands of hollow eye sockets staring at Nico. We, the bones that are here, await yours. He hurried out of the church hoping he remembered the way back to his friends. And that's the end of chapter 14. What a fascinating chapter. I think that this chapter really highlighted not just Nico's relationship with Hades, but a god's relationship in general with their children. As gods continue to have multiple children, and the big three, continuously we find out that they broke their promise again and again and again. It's fascinating to see this kind of relationship with these big with these bigger gods, big three gods, and their children. Because these big threes have such immense responsibilities put upon them that they struggle to pay any more attention than other gods do. It's practically the same amount of attention despite the fact, or even less amount of attention, just because of the fact that it's the big three. And it's that they might have more more potentially more responsibilities in order to take care of, in order to be a working leader of Olympus. So seeing this interaction between Nico and Hades allowed for that tension between demigods and their parents in general, and seeing how individuals are able to solve that as a whole. So that was the end of our reading. Now we will be moving on to the shout out session. If you are, if you do not want to listen to the shout out session, you are feel to, you are free to leave here. Thank you very much for listening. And now we are going to move on to the Q&A session. Once again, I would like to give the disclaimers that one, if I do miss your question or your name, do please let me know in this episode and I will try to get you in the next episode. And two, if I do end up sometimes missing your question, it may be because I'm a bit uncomfortable by the question. That doesn't mean that it is anything on everybody and on anybody's part. They are free to ask more questions. I just don't wish to make anybody feel bad if I'm unable to answer one of those questions. Now, moving on to the shout-out session, we have Laura Godinez, Logan, Mr. Parker, RHP underscore 144 underscore M. Nemos, Martelius for Life, and Daughter of Apollo. Thank you guys very much. Now, moving on to the questions. Favorite and least favorite book of in Percy Jackson series? My favorite book would have to be The Lost Hero. Reason is... Leo gets introduced, his humor is introduced, and I think that it was a wonderful way to introduce him as an individual and his personality. And considering that my favorite character is Leo, that one would probably be my favorite one. Uh, 
And as per least favorite books, I don't believe, as of the moment, as of right now, I don't believe I have a least favorite book. It's just every single book is unique in their own perspective that I don't feel that there's really anything to feel not liked about these books. I mean, it's wonderful what Rick Riordan does with these books, with the way that he's able to highlight the character development and the plot and be able to interweave them together. It's definitely something that is magnificent to watch. Next question is, will you read Chalice of the Gods? Of course. How do monsters get out of Tartarus now that the doors of death are closed? How did they get out before the doors of death existed? That is a wonderful question. I think the, to, the, to answer your first part, actually, I wouldn't say I'm sure in terms of how they would respawn again if they were killed. And in terms of the second question, I believe that the doors of death existed for as long as eons, as much as the monsters, as much as the monsters did. The first monster also had access to the doors of death. And I'm assuming that's when Thanatos also came alive, as he was standing guard to the doors of death. Regularly. So, great question. If anybody has an answer to that specific question, you're free to answer that as well. I think that this is a very fascinating question to ask. If one of the seven was going to die, who do you think it's going to be? That's also a really good question. I think... In moments like this, it is best to trust the prophecy. And in that prophecy, it's going to be either Leo or Jason. And I wish it would not be either one of them. But if I'm going to be realistic, it seems like it will be Jason. Because I can see in the mood and the tone that comes within him as I'm reading from his perspective and as I'm seeing him interact with other individuals, it kind of foreshadows this, the gloom that will also follow later on because Jason will meet his demise. Now, do I hope this to happen? Not at all. But I think that we can already see the mood shifts and changes that are happening for Jason. The mood shift and change for Leo is more about Calypso, which is why I'm not worried about Leo. However, I am more worried about Jason. However, it could be a possibility that Leo does end up meeting his demise as well, which also would be unfortunate. But we'll have to see what exactly happens. How, and the next question, how would you compare Percy and Leo's moms given the fact that they can both deal with the godly parent leaving and only want them around to be a dad to their kids? I think that's expected. That's a valid expectation brought upon the godly parents. I mean, if you have a child, it is your duty to take care, or at least it would be great if the godly parent is able to be existent in that demigod's life throughout their childhood and not be meeting them for the first time when they're a teenager. So I think that it would be what Sally and Leo's mom essentially wanted was a lot more engagement with their godly parent. Being able to, I guess, take in the fact that they were demigod at a younger age would probably help them to be prepared for situations like this, like Gaia's army and whatnot, and be able to take that into account knowing that they are a demigod at such a young age and having their father having his having their fathers or mothers being able to confront them and give them the reality check next question is do you like spicy food i like it favorite color um i'd say probably teal teal is a nice color uh which one would you sorry choose an animal that best relates to each of the seven Ooh. I would have to think about that. That is a very good question. Um, I would definitely have to think about that. But 
I will try my give, give, and give my answer to the, in the next episode because that that would take a lot of thinking to do, um, to think about uh, which character belongs with which spirit animal. Next question is, which one would you choose? Arkham D Sphere, Daedalus's laptop, Brian Arian, Brian the Hundred-Handed One, or Mrs. O'Leary? I would say I would choose Daedalus's laptop. I think the fact that, especially since we live in a digital world now, just looking at our side of the world and not Rick Riordan's side of the world, we live in a digital world. So I think the fact that Daedalus's laptop was already a- ahead of its prime, it would be great. It would be, I believe that it would be, it would be nice to compare the effects that the digital world, the modern digital world has versus something, just a single device like Daedalus's laptop. And that is the end of the Q&A session. I hope you guys enjoyed the session and I hope you guys enjoyed the episode overall. And next week, we will continue with this by reading chapters 15 through 16. And so then, until next week, stay safe and stay out of boredom.